Hello everybody, welcome to Melanated Movie Mondays, and today we are going to be going over the 1950s and the 1960s during the civil rights movement and a little bit of time before then. Today I'm actually interviewing with Foster Solomon. Yes. He was actually my professor last <laughs> spring, so this is really interesting. I didn't get to see him in person, you know, due to the pandemic and everything. So <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, she said I'm Foster Solomon, and <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm uh, at John Tyler. I'm a, a public speaking, communications, and also the theater teacher, and uh, I guess a big reason why she's got me on here is uh, – I'm an independent filmmaker as well. I've been in the industry for a long time, and um, my independent movie, Hawks Ridge, is uh, streaming on Amazon and Tubi TV right now. Uh, it's a dramatic thriller about a uh, grieving ex-pastor who has to figure out what to do, whether to save the life of the white man that killed his wife. Ooh. So um, that's who I am. That's interesting. Yes. I like that. Thank I like you. That. Okay, so... As I always like to do, I like to reiterate the purpose of the podcast, and it's just the evolutionary analysis of African-American history in cinema. So I like to go over the history that was going on during that time and kind of shine light to the struggles they were going through in society and that they still found it necessary to highlight the fact that black people deserve representation in cinema and entertainment. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So, Foster, this mm -hmm. is so interesting calling you Foster and not like Professor Solomon. Uh, you know, is, like we were it. virtual, so we are. it's we not were. like you actually had to say my name or anything. I so, but you know, emails and everything, yeah. you know, you try to keep like that professional, like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, this is my professor. Yeah. But, um, what do you have any account for what happened during the 50s and 60s just on a social construct, not so much movies? Um, I mean, yeah, I definitely know my history, and I mean, it's like, um, I mean, I think one of the big things is to always think about, you know, like we, we've gotten decades past the civil rights movement and even just the way that I just say it just passed. I mean, it it never ended in the 60s. It's still going on and it didn't begin in the 60s. Correct. You know, it began the second slaves were brought over. There was a civil rights movement. There was an abolitionist movement. Um, so it was already happening in the 50s. And um, I would definitely say, you know, like post-war, post-World War II, um, you know, that, oh, how do you put it? That, that fictitious version of what people think America was in the fifties was a lot more turbulent than, um, you know, the, the fantasy of what people think, you know, like the, the, the television version of the fifties, the, um, the Mayberry, the Andy Griffith show yes. version of the fifties, uh, especially in urban environments, especially in, you know, like New York, Chicago, all of those types of places, um, and it was definitely being reflected as the world of cinema opened up more and more. Uh, everything is connected. I mean, I'm a very much a theater person, so um, very much like in New York at that time, uh, independent theater, you know, like off and then off, off-Broadway theater really started to become a huge, uh, impactful thing uh, on the world of theater. And that's, of course, going to start drawing in people to come and see those shows and that's going to draw in producers who are interested in what are those shows. And ultimately, that's going to lead to Hollywood producers going, well, if people are going to see that show, 
uh, in New York, maybe we can make a movie out of it. So uh, that definitely, it, like I said, all things went hand in hand during that time. That's really interesting that you point that out because in a previous episode, I believe during the my first episode of the 1895s to the 1910s, mm-hmm. I talked about just a little bit about vaudeville actors mm-hmm. and their part in like the Chicago Pekin Theater, mm-hmm. which was the blueprint for the like very well-known Apollo Theater mm-hmm. yes. that we all know today in New York um, and how a lot of times those theaters would be used to screen movies mm-hmm. if they didn't have any acts or anything going on that evening. Yep. So, of course, everything is connected. Everything ties back together. And I really, I think that's interesting because a lot of people try to break up theater from films and a lot of times oh. in history they oh. were best friends. Oh, like they, they were, you couldn't have one without the other. Yes, especially very much now. so. Like, a lot of Broadway films are movies that are a lot of Broadway productions mm-hmm. are movies or vice versa. You yes, know? a lot of very much so become Broadway shows. Become Broadway shows. Yeah. So, you know, it always comes full circle yes. as everything does. Um, thank you for pointing out that the civil rights movement was never just the sixties. Oh you yeah. Because in class they always try to pinpoint it to it was just the sixties and yeah. then we moved forward and all of this happened and you know today it's a great day and. I have a lot of conversations with older generations, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I feel like we're still fighting the same oh. fight. Like, let's just uh, let's just let you know, when you are my age, there will be people that will be saying uh, the Black Lives Movement of 2020. Yes, and you'll be like, it's it's, we're, it's still happening. But I'm saying it's like it's yeah. still it's still happening here in 2022, and it will still be going on. But yeah, things like to be like pigeonholed into a, a time of, especially when yes. textbooks are concerned history textbooks oh are gosh. concerned yeah yes so at john tyler not to really get too off track but i have such an appreciation for the professors that i've had there mm-hmm. specifically you and my um, mentor janelle marshall mm-hmm. you guys find it your job to find updated and unbiased textbooks i um my history teacher was the first professor i had where I had a history textbook that said this is what really happened, hmm. whether you believe it or not. Like, hmm. <laughs> it was like, it literally was like, yes, yeah, so you were probably told this, mm-hmm. but this is what happened. Right. And there was letters from, like, the time period of Christopher Columbus and how this is what he did. It was, like, letters reporting back to, like, Napoleon or somebody. Like Probably Queen, uh, Queen Isabella, I think. Yes. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, there's people here, but... We don't want them here, so we're just going to kill all of them. And we'll, <laughs> we'll just act like they was never here in the first place. And right. I was like, they don't tell you this back in grade school right. when you're formulating, when you're becoming a person, you know? Yeah. So I always think that's interesting. Um, so, again, during the 1950s, there was this – we were still in the Jim Crow era, mm-hmm. which was something that I covered in previous episodes that it lasted over 100 years. Yeah. 100 years of this separation – and now, in today's time, people think that it's supposed to just vanish. Right. And that is something I really, like, a pet peeve of mine. Mm-hmm. That stuff just doesn't vanish just because there was a Band-Aid put over a bullet wound. Right. You know? Oh, that's good. Yeah. You know, shout out to Taylor Swift. I got it from her. <laughs> okay. I can't even take, I can't take credit I for will, that. I would have believed you said it. <laughs> I wish I could, but I got to give credit where credit is due. So, a couple of movies during this time period... Of course, we had the same problem where there were African-American movies, but they were not produced by African-Americans. How do you feel like that's an impact to society? 
which part of your question? Like like um, them coming, the movies coming out themselves and how they're received or how they got made? How they got made. The okay. fact that it was a black lens from a white perspective. Yeah. Like. Look, I mean, the bottom line is movies are expensive and, um, you know, they've got to make them to cover the cost. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. They've got to make them and hope that they make back the money that it cost to make the film. Yes. Um, you know, I, I would love to be as young and idealist as I was when I was young, but I'm also old enough to be a realist of I've become, I've gotten more happy with if as long as the message is out there. I've stopped caring so much how the message gets out there. Um, I'll even jump to like let's just jump to a recent example. Um, from what is it? God, I can't believe it's five years ago now. La La Land. Did mm. you see La La Land? I have not seen La La. Land. Okay, uh, but you know it's you know yes. um, um, Emma Stone with Emma Stone and yeah. and oh what's Ryan Gosling? Yes. Okay, so Gosling. a musical mm. set in Los Angeles about jazz. Okay. Okay. I resisted seeing it for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, just simply on the principle is it was a musical, a jazz musical about jazz. And its two leads were two white actors. Correct. That but, doesn't even. But here's that's the not thing. Mathematically correct. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and here's the thing, though. I, I did finally get around to seeing it, and it's amazing, and it's wonderful, and it got the world of jazz out there. And even Ryan Gosling's character is constantly talking about how he admires Thelonious Monk and all of the the greats of jazz, the black musicians of jazz, and everything. Right. And it and it features so much. Original jazz music, and John Legend is also in it. Yes. My thing is, I understand why they had to make that decision. Because you've got to have those names mm -hmm. to get those butts in seats. And especially when you ever get around, you should see the movie. Because whenever you get around to seeing the movie, it's also visually really daring. Yes. And so it's very unlike anything a standard audience would want to see. And so I'm just simply saying... This comes back to the 50s and 60s. This is answering your question in a roundabout way. Um, I, I feel like that movie had to do what it had to do to cast those people to still get that message out there of uh, uh, an art form that is 100% American, 100% created by black Americans, jazz music. Um, and if more people leave that place buying the soundtrack and then even exploring who was Thelonious Monk, who was um, uh, Miles Davis then it's a win. It did its job. So what I feel like, and especially one of the movies I'm sure we'll end up talking about, like, say, Carmen Jones, um, and even um, A Raisin in the Sun, which I know we'll talk about as well, you know, like how those movies had to get made through white studios, white directors, uh, and all of that type of stuff. The bottom line was the audience at that time, we, we really, you know, people like you and I, we know who made those movies. The average person doesn't know, doesn't know and doesn't care. Correct. And so... Seeing those movies and seeing those black actors up on the screen and seeing the story of the black experience up on the screen, ultimately, to me, I, I feel like, yes, it would be wonderful if every aspect from in front of the camera to all the way down to catering was yeah. all black. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, those moments do happen. I mean, that was the majority of Black Panther. Correct. Was so much, you know, like black crew and everything. Right. But the bottom line is I would still even say that there were many people that had no idea nor cared. Yeah. That the majority of Black Panther's crew was black. Was black. It right. was what they were seeing on the screen. That's true. So, 
so you brought up a very you brought up very good points and i wanted to touch on a couple of those one of my questions was with la la land right Mm -hmm. um or with any of these movies from the 1950s or the 1960s do you think it still could have been okay maybe not so much the 1950s and 60s because they ran into a lot of the same problems that i mentioned in previous podcasts where funding like you said funding is a really big part of it so if it's a black name on the director producer level they just didn't have the funding that white directors and producers had yeah but for the instance of la la land do you think it would have got the same respect had it not been gosling and stone like we have very well renowned black actors Mm -hmm. and i feel like they could put butts in seats i'm gonna put you on the spot on your own podcast think back to 2017 who would you have cast who is who is a black male and a black female actor in their 20s that is of that butts and seats power level, power level. that right. would have gotten those people there. I'm sure we can think of somebody, I mean, but yeah. it would not be. And, you know, you're right, because there's always this point that I try to make that renowned actors to the African-American community aren't mm-hmm. even known to the white community. Yeah. Like, I've had conversations with white people like, oh, my gosh, I love Jennifer Lewis. And they're like, who's Jennifer Lewis? I'm like, that's my aunt. What do you mean, who's Jennifer Lewis? <laughs> like, like yeah. you don't know her? Like, yeah. And, you know, you're right. I just wish that it wasn't that way. But, you know, we can't right. we can't do much about it but move forward. Yeah, and, and just keep support. I mean, it's it's the I, – I think people talk about the um, – uh, the faux pas that happened at the Oscars uh, with the best picture thing, you know, it's like it was accidentally yes, nom- it said was actually La La Land, La La Land and then it was actually it was Moonlight. Moonlight. Yes. Um, and I think I think a huge thing that happened with that is, is it honestly made more people, even though it was nominated, even though it won. I feel like that thing made people more aware of Moonlight yes. than they probably, probably ever would have been, been because before. it was such the Correct. news the next day yeah. of wrong movie announced. It wasn't yeah. La La Land, which a lot of people heard of. It was this other movie, Moonlight. And I'm sure right. if, if more people went like, well, what is Moonlight? Yeah. Because, I mean, Who except for... It? it was a low-budget movie. Exactly. Without a well-renowned producer behind it, director exactly. behind it. Exactly. And I mean, I think... Like the biggest name at that time was Mahershala Ali in it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm wrong. There was a uh, one of the one of the women that starred in it was also a I name. I don't think she was that well known. Okay, though. but the point being is, is yeah. that that's what La La Land would have been. Right. Is it would have been a lower budget, you know, because right. they they they're looking at their investment and what they're going to yeah. get back. It's the reason why Moonlight had to be. As low budget as it needed to be. So yeah. I feel like it's it's all a question of how does the message get out there. Right. And like I said, just once again, getting back to what we're talking about here, um, especially for something, you know, like the struggle that Lorraine Hansberry had to go through for, uh, you know, because when they, they – I, I can't remember whether or not she insisted. I'm pretty sure just knowing who she was. I know a lot about her. Uh, but I don't remember. I'm sure she, like, fought. She was like, nobody else is going to write this screenplay yeah. but me. But I also know the heartbreak that has to happen if she had if she had just given over to somebody else. Correct. There would have been a different version of heartbreak, I feel, versus her writing the screenplay. And then she's got to get notes from a studio. Yes. On her baby. Right. You know, and the things that they wanted to change and, and how, how they, they wanted to look and yeah. how they wanted it all to look. Robert and Robert Townsend said once in this documentary on Netflix where it was like it's white people telling black people how to be black. Yeah. That's really what it right. is. Right. But I know also she suffered through all of that. I'm sure there yeah. was lots of tears. I'm sure there was probably lots of scotch. 
during the night. <laughs> but she ultimately knew that this story was going to get further than just yeah. Broadway. So let's talk about that, right? Um, let's go ahead and talk about Carmen Jones. Mm-hmm. So Carmen Jones was a movie. Hold on. So let's go ahead and talk about Carmen Jones. Mm-hmm. And one thing I found interesting about Carmen Jones is when I look up these movies, I always like to look up who the director was, yeah, right? Auto premature. Because I try to mm-hmm. like highlight African American movies done by African American cast, yeah. you know. And just as it has been, it was hard to find. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting about this movie because I feel like you don't hear a lot about immigrants being such a foreplay in media at this time. The director was a Middle Eastern man. Yeah. Um, he was Austro-Hungarian. Mm-hmm. His name was Otto Preminger. Otto Preminger, yep. Yes, and I thought that was really interesting. Do you know much about him? Or Oh, I mean, he's a, a titan of, you know, American cinema. And, I mean, it's going to come back to the same thing that we've been talking about. This movie yeah. would not have been made. Yeah, had it not been somebody. Had it not been, um, I mean, like, not just, like, pushed for but like championed by him i mean like adamantly like this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it um you know like he was a force of nature i mean there were people that were terrified right of him um (laughs) he did look scary i looked at him (laughs) and he was and he definitely was who is this man (laughs) but it needed someone like that it needed a force of nature like that to get such a daring story like this made you know it was it started out on um Broadway, uh, was it Hammerstein? Oscar Hammerstein, I think. Oh, gosh, I would hate for this to go out there, and I'm, I'm wrong. But it's basically like he was the person that adapted it okay. from, you know, the original opera, Carmen. Okay. Um, and so yet again, another um, white man, but right. looking at this story and somehow feeling like it can relate to the black experience, right. adapting it to that. Uh, and then, you know, that same thing, as I said, it got a lot of press and uh, money on Broadway, which then makes people go, OK, if this is on Broadway, it how can, can we make film. this in, into a movie? And that got Preminger there. Uh, but what I know about it is also it's like I think the original version, the Broadway version is really just sort of like a loose, looser story. Right. And so that was a big thing that Preminger did as well is he like brought in another writer um, you know, like the difference between like um, like there's the music and then there's the book. The person yeah. who writes the book uh, is the person that writes like the scenes that go yes. between uh, the songs. So brought it in to really tighten up that story and make it more um, streamlined and more yeah. more more um, linear, I guess is the right word I'm trying to say. So let's get into the plot of yeah. Carmen Jones. Right. So we have Dorothy Dandridge. Mm-hmm. Right. We have Harry Belafonte. Mm-hmm. And what was the woman's, the other woman's name, the white character, sorry? Is there a white character in that movie? I believe so. Is it not? No. Maybe my movies are no, no, it's blending together. No, he liked the white woman first at the beginning. No, no, no. Oh. no. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to. I'm blending you're gonna, them together. I think you're blending them together because you're <laughs> going to. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna hurt my light skin self. It's the light skin <laughs> black oh, girl. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, like Susie or yes. whatever. 
Yeah, yes. it's like Daisy Sue or some like yeah, super yeah, yeah, saccharine yeah. sweet name. Yes. Uh, you know, like the 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 sweet country girl. Yes. Uh, who's so naive I and sweet. So. I was like, no, there was definitely like a yeah. white woman at the beginning. Yep. No. 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 She was mixed. Oh. Yes. Well, I am sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure it was definitely cast for a contrast between yes. uh, her and Dorothy Dandridge. But yeah, Correct. no, it's it's every face you see on screen. Yeah, it was black. Is black. Yeah. And that was such an important factor during mm-hmm. that time period. You know that. Makes more sense because I was like, but yeah, um, why do they have this random white lady? <laughs> that that makes sense. That's fair. Okay, um, yeah. So that was like a really important part. It was mm-hmm. during they were soldiers, correct? Yeah, it they was. They were all soldiers. Yes. They were yep. on a base. World War Two. Mm-hmm. World War Two, and the dynamic between Dorothy and Harry Belafonte mm-hmm. and their characters was something that wasn't normally seen during that mm-hmm. time. You know. Did you want to like? Well, especially uh, we can just slide into feminism as well. Just to yeah. have a female character so strong that's just so strong and so uh, unapologetic about who yeah. she is, um, and not just simply like, not like in terms of sexuality. It's not just that you know she has, um, well, for lack of a better term, like a, especially for the 1950s, a looseness about her sexuality. But also a sense of her own moral compass because, you know, like she's very much just like, you know, like I'm not going to be tied down to any man. I'm going to love whatever man that I want. But then once she chooses Harry Belafonte and uh, the boxer guy wants her, she's very much just like, I'm not interested in you. I'm with this one guy. So it's just like not some like black and white or, you know, like either or, you know, she's completely just loose and sleeps around. You know, uh, she definitely has that aspect to her. But then she's also like once she's decided on somebody, that's who she's with until she's not. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't see another character like that until like the 80s with Nola Darling. Mm. Nice. Nice pull. Yes. You do not see another character Mm -hmm. like that. And that's what made that movie so Mm -hmm. profound because it was another black woman just saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And Mm -hmm. y'all just going to be okay with it. Yeah. There is no in between. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, that was just such a profound movie. Yeah. And they said I was watching a documentary, the same documentary on Netflix, and they mentioned that they only got to like film it in like three days. It was like a oh, the day. whole movie? No, no, no. no they, it they, was like ten days or something. It was like it that. was it was a nice. I mean, it was it was very short, but I mean, it, yeah, was, it like, was like very short. It was I like thirty. Like it was like thirty days, but it was like thirty, 30 like really really quick fast days. Yeah, they said they barely even got time to get the words right. I mm-hmm. remember Harry Belafonte said it. He said they didn't have a lot of time right recording it to the point where like they were lucky if they got the lines out, mm-hmm. let alone mm-hmm. if it was like you know picture perfect, right? Like we can do now, where we can spend a certain amount of time right. to. All right, run, rerun it, you know, do it again. Mm-hmm. Got to make it right, you know. But I think I love movies like that because it's more raw, mm-hmm. which is the pool for me. You right. Know? Like, oh, wow. Like, it was more realistic because it wasn't so picture perfect. Right. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Do you have any other favorites from this time period? Uh, you know, like I said before we got started, <laughs> I'm I'm more of like a 70s, 70s black person. cinema person so it was like the list of things i'll even admit on your podcast is like it's it's such a hole in my repertoire yeah. to have not seen in the heat of the night um but like i said the main ones from that time that i definitely know really really well um is is uh that poitier raisin in the sun yeah. um and also like i said with carmen jones what i also find interesting about just uh, carmen jones at that time 
it, it, there's so many things that we can just talk about in terms of like how much we see behind the curtain mm-hmm. of movies being made today uh, in the fact that at that time, it's ridiculous, is like Harry Belafonte and Dorothy Dandridge being singers. Yes. Uh, and them not singing the songs right. in that movie. Mm-hmm. You know, they're bringing in other people to sing the songs. But like at that time, that was just so common and yeah. nobody cared. Yeah. Nobody probably even knew Soon. at Correct. that time. It's like something that you discover when you're researching a movie now yeah. versus, oh, my God, if it was not like as we talked about La La Land, if it was not Ryan Gosling and singing? Emma Stone actually singing, oh, that would, would be all cow. all over the Internet. Cow. And it would have been such a huge thing. Exactly. So. In a small comparison, I remember when I was younger watching High School Musical, mm-hmm. and um, at the time, Zac Efron was going through puberty, and his voice was cracking. Oh, I had no he idea. He was not singing, I believe, in the first or the last movie. Interesting. He was not the voice. Because Did his not voice know that. was cracking, he couldn't hit the notes. Because he does <laughs> sing. Yeah. But he couldn't hit the notes during the time. I yeah. believe it was the first one, because he just, you know, it was during that time. Mm-hmm. You know, puberty, teenager years, and all that. And I remember, like, feeling betrayed yeah. almost like <laughs> how dare you not yeah. be singing you yeah. know so that's actually a very far point we wouldn't they wouldn't have even known that no. back in the 50s no. and 60s nor would it have even been a thought to them oh yeah yeah, yeah. like they could not be possibly singing that's lip singing like. yeah <laughs> yeah um what i also we just talk about the impact of say like um carmen jones what's so interesting having seen it recently uh and then uh during the research and looking at the reviews for it it's just so interesting some of the reviews which you know are written by you know like white men and they're just talking about you know like the lustful quality of the thing and everything and you're just watching it now (laughs) from like a 21st century lens and you're like yeah they're talking about sex Sex, and kissing but but it's so barely even did anything like yeah they said that um or when i saw it after doing the research of watching it the scene with the belt was a really big deal. Huge deal. Oh, my gosh. They were ready to have heads. Yeah. Huge (laughs) deal. Heads. Yeah. So for people who haven't watched it, there was a scene where Dorothy Dandridge and Harry Belafonte's character were in, like, a room, and, you know, she was trying to... He was resistant. Oh, he was... He was... Seduce Harry Belafonte. He he had no desire. Yeah, no. Like, this is not what I'm really into right now. Why are you doing this? And Dorothy Dandridge's character, being the person that she was, was kind of like... Yeah, let's see how you really feel if I start, <laughs> like, taking the first step, you know? Yeah. And she starts to unbuckle his belt and fix it for him because it was looped the wrong yeah. way. It was, yeah. like, twisted. Yeah. And she was kind of just like, yeah, and you could feel that sexual tension. Mm-hmm. I mean, even some people, not to get too provocative, but I'm sure, like, there's you, been some times you've where also we forgotten an, You've also forgotten another aspect of that scene while she's doing that. He's... He's He's eating, He's eating a peach. He's eating a peach. A peach. Yes. Yes. So let's just, you know, you know acknowledge very, very how unsubtle they were su- in that subliminal. scene. Yeah. <laughs> subliminal messaging yeah. there. Yeah. A peach. That's yeah. interesting. I thought it was an apple. Nope. <laughs> mm, well, we know what that peach emoji stands exactly. for. Now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was what they could get away yeah. with at the time. And yeah. it was huge for the audience yeah. for at that time. You know, during. No, in the 1930s or 40s, there was the Island in the Sun with Harry Belafonte. Mm-hmm. And there was a scene where he did something similar because the relationship there was interracial. Hmm. And there was this attraction between a man and a woman, and she was of 
European descent, mm-hmm. and I try to say European descent, but she was white. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know what and you mean. <laughs> and she was drinking out of a coconut, and hmm. he took the coconut and spun it around and drunk out of the exact same spot that mm-hmm. she did mm-hmm. to kind of you know subliminal message, you right? Know, a kiss, right? And because you know that during that time oh they yeah. were not allowed to even be like six feet within each other, <laughs> let alone kiss on yeah. national TV. But he had to give that raw like mm-hmm. "I want you" type vibe, yeah. and that's how he chose to do it. So again, that food to mouth subliminal messaging mm-hmm. has always been a very useful tool during the time periods where stuff like this was just not allowed. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought that was a really cool like wraparound yeah. to tie back to. I would agree. Yeah. Okay. So before we wrap things up, I like to do this thing called giving gratitude. And it's just to highlight somebody during the time period of 1950s to the 1960s that a lot of people wouldn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And since you were my guest today, is there somebody that you wanted to highlight that you don't think the everyday person would know? From that time period? From that time period. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) <laughs> it could be theater. It could be theater based. Uh, I know I kind of put you on the spot. Yes, <laughs> indeedy. Huh. Uh, edit out my hemming and hawing. <laughs> hmm. I mean, it's I really don't have, you know, that most people don't know. My thing is always just reminding people about people that you do know but don't forget what they did i mean okay. one of the big ones we haven't talked about is you know like really diving into a raisin in the sun and just the things uh, you know so especially talking about that one that. and and you know poitier and himself and you know um him i mean shepherding that story because you know like he was on broadway with it um Actually, I know the original version was actually Ozzie Davis, but then yeah. uh, the Broadway became Sidney Poitier and then him championing it all the way to the movie screen. And so for me, the impact of that one for an audience to see at that time. So it's maybe not necessarily a person, but it's just always reminding people about the impact of that play and that movie at that time, especially written by a woman at that time. Um and an aspect of black urban life that the majority of Americans did not know. And I feel like that's always the impact of that story is what happened before, uh, well, let's just, with the upward mobility of black Americans at that time. Uh, And especially the whole story of what they're doing in that and moving into a white neighborhood. And especially looking back on it and realizing where we are now yeah. You know, and what happened with uh, black families making money after World War Two and, and wanting to move like to those neighborhoods. The white flight. And then the white flight happening. And so, therefore, that ultimately leading towards um, then the white flight into cities and the gentrification yes. of and areas in the cities. Yes. And I mean, Which we still have a problem with. Oh, today. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But it all comes back to that time period yeah. that I feel like most people forget started with a very, very different vibe in America. I remember watching P. Diddy's version when I was a child Mm -hmm. and absolutely loving that movie to the point where I thought I was crazy. Like, I feel like nobody saw this movie ever (laughs) in my life. I remember just feeling the impact because I was a suburban black kid in Mm -hmm. a white neighborhood, my Mm -hmm. majority of my life anyway, Mm -hmm. and just seeing, like, the way I would get looked in, the way people Mm -hmm. would respond to me, and just having that, like, 
that representation on screen representation yeah. is such such an important thing because it made me feel not alone yeah and then i would talk to people about it and they'd be like what are you talking about i've never <laughs> heard of that and i'm like no i definitely well like they n- never heard of the movie yeah. oh my god <laughs> and when i was doing the research for it i was like oh my gosh i forgot about this movie the mm-hmm. racist yes like yeah i love this movie and i wish we could have talked about it just a little bit more i understand but Yes, the raisin in the sun was such an impactful time period, mm-hmm. and it does. It still happens to this day, and I've seen like um, there's TV shows that even still talk about it. There's it happens now. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've literally watched towns turn into gentrified areas, mm-hmm. like and race Issa Rae's Insecure. They talk about it with um, Edgewood, mm, okay, and Philly, Inglewood, Inglewood, yeah. and um, California, California, in Los Angeles, and they're like calling it like. That's the town she grew up in, and then like these white people are calling it like I would, like oh I'm going to I would, and she was <laughs> like I wish you would, like <laughs> no, talk about my city the way my city needs to be talked about. It's right. Inglewood, you know, right. like I don't care what y'all think y'all are doing, we were here first, right? And just I understand, I just mm-hmm. that was such a very impactful movie, and I wish more people could watch it. You should watch it if you can find it. I'm gonna look it up right now and tell you where you can watch it All if right. you can. I'm going to advocate for the Sidney Poitier version ver- versus yes, P. Diddy. Of course, of course. <laughs> I'm not even a P. Diddy fan, but the fact it yeah. just came out when I was a child. You know? Oh, of course. <laughs> and that's just what I saw. And I'll be honest with you, that's another thing that we talked about with La La Land. The reason why he was cast in that was to get butts in seats. You can watch it on Tubi, so uh, they could go and watch your movie. There you go. And then go watch Raisin in the Sun. Shameless plug for right Hawks there. Ridge. Shameless plug. Uh, I'm always for a shameless plug. You know, we got to support each other because who's going to do you. it for us? So thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Um, thank you for just being a professor during the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> just thank you all around. Um, I know these times haven't been easy, and I really just appreciate this conversation that we had today. Um, it was great. You brought a lot to light and gave me things that I didn't even think about doing the research. So thank I you. always love to see things from a different perspective. So, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So, this was uh, me with um, Mr. Foster Solomon today. We talked about the 1950s and the 1960s, and I hope you guys tune in next week. We're going to dive into the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. I have another interview coming. I'm super excited about it. Um, He's also a filmmaker himself, but... I think he's more of a film investor okay. from Richmond. So that'll be really fun and exciting to have. So Awesome. I'm excited. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>